1: The best of Cindy Adams is on the air. Best of.
2: Now, I'm about to speak to Rosanna Scotto. Just in case anyone has been living under an ice cap for the last 40 years, Fox TV's, Fox 5's Good Day New York morning show co-anchor, and part of the family that owns the East 52nd restaurant Fresco by Scotto. Listen. I would like to know, how long have you been on Channel 5's morning show? Hi, Cindy.
3: Nice to talk with you. Why do I have to count? The minute I start counting, everybody's like, how old is she? How long has she been there? What's next for her? Okay, let's just say it's over 30 years.
2: <laughs> like is that. Okay I, for like, you? I don't know. We're going to round all, it around. I mean, 30. come on. That was my last facelift. So my, <laughs> how did you get it? How did you get this? I will never forget
3: this. Okay. So yeah. I was working at Eyewitness News and I got fired by a news director who basically got rid of anybody who was like ethnic, you know, yeah. and, um, you know, I was out of work. I was, you know, pounding the pavements. I was months away from getting married and I had an offer in Philadelphia, which I was, I was definitely weighing very heavily, but then I got a phone call. I'll never forget it. St. Patrick's Day from the news director at Channel 5 who said, We had a lot of people calling sick today. Are you available to come in? And I said, Yes. And uh, I was scrounging around the house for anything green to put on. I was so excited. Um, And I started as a freelancer there. And I got a contract, I think, around the time I got married, September 13th. And I've been there ever since.
2: You weren't scared?
3: I, of course I was scared. I was scared because, you know, your confidence is shaken yeah. when you get fired. And, um, you know, Channel 5 was a lot different than Channel 7. Channel 5 at that point, I mean, they had the 10 o'clock news. And they were serious business. I mean, you watched the 10 o'clock news and you knew you were getting investigative pieces. You were getting hard-hitting news. And, you know, um, That was not my forte. My forte was features. And it worked out, you know. You you rise to the occasion by living and learning and watching and talking to people. And, you know, John Rowland was the anchor yeah, with Bill yeah. McCreary at that time. And, um, you know, I cozied up to them. And John, by the way, is a fantastic writer. He taught me a lot about writing and conversation and making sure that the audience felt very much a part of what you're doing and not just talking to the masses, but talking to one person. And I've been there ever since.
2: Okay, you said about your forte, but what was your forte? Where did you get prepared to do this kind of work in the first place?
3: Well, you know, while I was in college, I was doing the regular um, internships. I had interned a lot at ABC. Yeah. ABC News, ABC Overnight, GMA. You know, they put you on everything, every shift that you can possibly get, ripping scripts and, you know, running errands for the anchors. Yeah. Um, when I graduated college, I moved to Atlanta and I worked for Ted Turner. I worked for oh, WTBS. Well, well, yeah. Oh, And, boy, oh, boy, those were the days. We used to call it the Turner School of Broadcasting because everybody at a school was there. And we were all learning together. I started off as the Chiron operator on the news. And that's, you know, when you see somebody's name or you see all the sports scores, I was putting inputting that information.
2: And not getting paid much, by the way, I'm sure. No,
3: nothing, nothing. (laughs) but. You know, you could live in Atlanta pretty nicely. I remember that the uh, apartment I had was a beautiful apartment in Buckhead, and it was like, I think, $300 a month. It was on a small little golf course that had four pools. And I learned that every Saturday I would kind of like pool hop and I would meet all of Ted Turner's girlfriends at the pool. Oh. <laughs> he had a was different better, girlfriend yeah. at every pool. <laughs> and, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. And, and you know, I got to know them and started to, you know, befriend them. And, you know, you move up the ladder in a place like that. You know, it's a non-union shop in, in Atlanta. And I started as Chiron. Then I started as uh, a writer and then field field producer, and I was working with this uh, wonderful reporter, Marilyn Ringo, who took me under her wing and showed me what it was like to construct a story, and we traveled all over the country. We had the greatest boss. His name was um, Don Hewitt. Oh, oh. he, He was... The son of Don Hewitt. His name was Jeffrey Hewitt. His dad was Don Hewitt. Yeah, yeah. And he would say, just find three places, three stories in any place. So I went... Um, riding motorcycles with Malcolm Forbes of Forbes Magazine at his ranch in Wyoming. Then I went ballooning with him in New Jersey. Um, I sat on the mountaintop with John Denver and discussed music. I also did while I was there the head of Celestial Seasoning teas in Denver. I mean, I <laughs> had the most incredible experiences. I was I was making nothing, but it didn't matter. I was meeting some. Incredible people. It was like what whoever I can get and book, I could go and do.
2: I I, I understand. I understand. And now that you're here on Channel Five's morning show with with Laurie Stokes, what time do you get up every morning?
3: I get up about four thirty. I. Oh. I know. It's, you know, it's tough, but I think about the girls before me, you know, they're on from 4.30 to 7 a.m., and they get up at 2 o'clock in the morning. I don't think this body could get out of bed at 2.
2: What do you do with your, pardon the expression, husband, when you're getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning?
3: Oh, he's the king. Yes. The king must not be disturbed, Cindy, okay? (laughs) So everything is planned out the night before. The outfit's out, you know, the shoes are outside in the hallway, the bag is packed All I do is get up, shower, put on my clothes, hair is crazy, no makeup, grab a coffee from the Keurig, put it in my thermos, and off I go in car service. Um, I get to work about 5.05. We have a meeting at 5.20.
2: A meeting for what?
3: Uh, We kind of go through line by line what's on three hours of news. Yeah. And we make suggestions. We pretty much know the night before who is in our 9 to 10 o'clock hour because that's the lifestyle celebrity entertainment hour. And so usually the night before I've already done my research, I already've like have in my mind, if not notes, on what I'm going to ask them, you know, what I want to get out of them. And then, of course, we have the newsmakers between seven and nine. And that can be anybody from, you know, Governor Cuomo to... I've heard the
2: name. I've heard the name. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead.
3: <laughs> to yeah. Donald Trump, yeah. who we've had on the show before he was president of the United States. Yeah. And uh, you just never know. And you, you, you've, got you've got to be prepared. You've got to be prepared. You've got to be ready. Ready to challenge them on whatever they say, and um, it's exciting. I mean, you know, people are like, "How how long are you going to do this for?" Until I can't do it anymore. It's I'm on the front line of history every day. You know, we're making news every day. I am meeting the most important movers and shakers in the country. I mean, what am I going to do? Stay at home and knit? I don't know how to knit. I do not have a hobby.
2: Okay. What time do you get up and ruffle the king? What time?
3: The king does not awaken while I'm sleeping. (laughs) Um, The only time I have awakened the king is when um, there's like a snowstorm and I know there's no way I'm getting car service and there's no way I'm walking to work in a snowstorm. So the king will get the car (laughs) and he will take me to work and then come back and put his kingly body back in bed.
2: I get it. Okay. So when do you do the royal breakfast and coffee?
3: So what I do is I take my coffee to work, and while we're uh, discussing our show, I'll have, you know, one to two cups in my thermos, and I will have that. And what I've been trying to do to take off that COVID-19, which is not 19, but 10. Yeah, me too. um, It's got to come off. And um, I will fast, intermittent fast. So I really don't have breakfast until 10 o'clock in the morning and I'll take like an oatmeal with me or I'll go across the street. We have some nice little coffee shops and stuff and I'll- That's,
2: that's dieting? That not, not having breakfast until 10 is what you call a rigid diet? Well, don't forget, I... <laughs> <laughs> this is some denial
3: here. Yeah. Oh, but look, look, it's, you have to not eat for 16 hours, okay? So what I try to do is I do a big lunch around 2 o'clock. So I am usually finished by three thirty, four o'clock in the afternoon. I try not to eat anything at night. Um, so it will wind up being 16
2: hours by 10 a.m. Listen, I always see you schlepping out to events. Even at night, what time do you go to bed? When do you ever sleep? Well, I have to tell you, the
3: last year and a half, I've gotten a lot of sleep. Yeah. Um, Because, as you know, we were all kind of shut down. All the movie premieres, the theater events, uh, the fun restaurant openings, going to my restaurant, that was closed. I mean, we did not have that option. So I really was very rigid and disciplined getting into bed uh, by 830 and sleeping by 930. Okay. You but I-, I can't wait to go out with you again. Do you remember that time that we went out and there was like some 12-year-old who was like working for I don't know what, and she was looking for Cindy Adams, and I picked up your name, and I said, I'm Cindy Adams, and you almost hit me with it because um, I was trying to answer the questions. And you said, Actually, I can't, remember,
2: I can't remember where I was yesterday, so <laughs> don't even bother me. Let me <laughs> – but, but – but- i you get up with an, an alarm, one alarm, one alarm? I have alarm. four alarms whenever I have to get up because I'm terrified something will happen. You trust one lousy cockamamie yes. alarm?
3: It's the, the alarm on my cell phone. And I will tell you, now, I've been doing mornings for 13 years. I've overslept twice. Now, overslept means I've overslept to... Five thirty, a quarter to six. Because my bosses know I'm very disciplined. I'm always on time. I'm never late. And so when they don't see me for the five twenty meeting, they start calling me. Yeah. So, um,
2: so you I, heard the phone. You hear the phone.
3: I hear the phone. They will call me on the phone, and I have been. I've never missed the top of the show ever. Why am I jinxing myself? Why am I <laughs> jinxing myself? But I've never missed in 30 years a
2: deadline. Well, if you get fired, tell them my name. Just <laughs> mention my name just in exactly, case. Exactly, I and will. Just in case. So I once did a story when I was doing television every every day. And the story was, what happens to our schmatas when we get a stain, an ink on the blouse, or I spill coffee on oh. it, or... I'm too fat and I have a diaper pin in the back. It happens to all of us. How do you fix your wardrobe which from the waist up you look okay but from the back it's like a garage sale how do you do that
3: (laughs) you're so right about that in fact i wore a blazer today that i got from zara zara has made these beautiful colorful blazers and they're very inexpensive and this one i bought now i'm usually a small on the top the bottom is a different story (laughs) and so today for some reason my back grew and anytime i move. I heard. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's so chic. Very chic. And, yeah.
3: and I said to Lori, I said, Did I rip the back of the, 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 the thing? She said, No, I, but I ripped the lining. So that was good. I had a little extra room.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I was on the air with, uh, I forgot who, uh, who I was on the air with, Sue Simmons, Sue Simmons at NBC. We were doing Live at 5 and the contact lens in my eye rolled out right down the, the schmata I was wearing. You know how chic that is when you've got oh, one eye yeah, and it's rolling yeah. down like a sequin. I yeah. thought, well, I could either kill myself or what. So I threw it out, and then I had to wink for the rest of the show. <laughs> I couldn't see anything.
3: <laughs> well, today, apparently, my lipstick was running. I have no idea. How can lipstick run? High. How
2: can lipstick run?
3: I, I have no idea. I said, did I look like a drunk? Like, I went, like, 15 minutes looking like I, I had, like, 18 drinks this morning. I have no idea. God forbid anybody in the studio would have told me. One of the interns said, you may want to fix your your lipstick. I'm like, what? And then I looked, and it was, like, co- coming down to my chin.
2: So the question is, since I am now doing this interview with you, have you ever done a really lousy Interview and oh, what plenty. do you do with? Oh, what do plenty. you do to save so, yourself? Okay, let
3: me tell you what happened. Uh, perhaps you know. Tori spelling. Oh, okay. She was on 90210. And you know, her family has like a gazillion dollars, right? A gazillion. Yeah. I don't understand it, but there must be a reason why they're not giving Tori and her (laughs) hundred kids and husband, um, any money, right? Yeah. So before she's coming on to talk about the reboot of 90210, And before she comes on, somebody tells me and shows me uh, a message that she needs money. She doesn't have money for groceries, that she's bouncing checks, blah, blah, blah. And they showed me like it was from her. It was not whatever. So it was in my mind, you know. So we sit down and Lori and I were doing the interview and Lori like had just gotten there like five seconds ago. (laughs) So she did not know like what was going to happen. In fact, I think she was mortified. So I, you know, Lori asked the first few questions, very nicey, nicey, nicey. And then I go, Tori, do you have money? She goes, what do you mean? I go, wait, do you have money, like, to support your family? I know you're supporting your family. Well, the interview degenerated from there. It was so bad that, like, in the middle of it, I it, it was I don't even know it wasn't even me like who asked somebody if they have any money like I would never ask anybody that but it was on my mind right and because money has been such an issue with her you know and it really got bad and and it went viral of course it went viral her her husband was calling me terrible names on social media. My son saw it he like is starting a fight with them on social media. I'm like do not engage. I, it was my fault. Do not engage. So that was that was a real doozy. <laughs> <laughs> and Lori, Lori was like, I think she was just shell shocked. So yeah. How do you
2: how do you how do you do with this cockamamie Zoom stuff? I mean, I I look like a grizzly on Zoom, so I don't do Zoom. I, First what of about all, you?
3: I have become an IT technician. You know, I used to think that it was a big deal just to try to figure out cable. How do I get to Netflix? You know, that was like a big thing in my house. I'm rebooting, taking, you know, plugs out, replugging them in, thinking I was a big genius. Now, all of a sudden, we get locked down. The only way we can communicate is via Zoom. You know, in the beginning it was, it was crazy because some days I was on, some days I had no audio, some days I had audio, I had no video, but then you get to the hang of it and oh my goodness, I was like, I am like a queen. Like, I'll tell you what happened. So one day I had Bette Midler, an interview with Bette Midler, but I had to go get my color done because we were just <laughs> <going>. <laughs> I can only tell you this because, you know, I mean, come on, we're in a visual medium. I'm going to go on with all gray hair. That's- I don't think so. Okay, I'd be fired two seconds later. So anyway, it was like a must. I had to get my hair colored. So I thought the way it was scheduled that I would be able to get my hair colored, get home and have everything set up on Zoom. P.S., everybody's late at the hair salon, right? Okay, (laughs) out of my control. And now it's time to Zoom with Bette Midler. I'm looking around. I'm like, okay, I'll zoom from my phone. I can figure that out. But where am I going to zoom? So I'm at Oscar Blondie's salon. Oscar's in his office. I'm like, Oscar, would you mind stepping out for a few minutes? I need your office. And now I'm moving things because he's got color boxes behind him. He's got blow dryers. I'm like try, I'm like clearing out the background so I could talk to Bette Midler. Now she probably didn't want to say where the heck you are. Like, where are you? But anyway, we had the greatest interview. She was charming. We did not talk politics. What did you do with the gray roots? The gray roots, I, I color sprayed. <laughs> do you ever use color spray? It's a great thing. No, to I'm a it.
2: natural brunette. Don't, Don't go there. Don't go there. I'll hang up Don't go there. Yep.
3: You can buy it in the pharmacy. I'm That's not buying the, anything in the pharmacy. But go you ahead. Know, At one point when we were on lockdown, I had my daughter do my color. It was a freaking disaster. Okay, I had color running down my back. I had patches of gray.
2: (laughs) I'm so pleased. So I know that you have had some people that are not so great. Have you had you've had a lot of celebrities on? You even had grouchy Fauci, didn't you?
3: I have to tell you something. I don't think he's so grouchy. First of all, we had him on in April of 2020. Now, right, we were locked down in March. I used my magic. This little engine, we worked it, worked it, worked it. You know, I did the whole Brooklyn connection. He grew up in my neighborhood in Diker Heights. In fact, his farm, his father was the pharmacist for my family. Well, okay. okay. Now, at one point, Dr. Fauci, when he was a kid, he used to ride his bicycle delivering the the medication to the people in the neighborhood. I don't think he ever delivered to us. I don't know. I was not born yet. But anyway, um, he was lovely. He came on. We must have done 20 minutes with him. And my bosses were like, how did you do that? Because not only did we talk great stuff about, you know, COVID and what people needed to know, fact and fiction, what you, you know, how to survive this. But then we talked about Brooklyn, growing up in Brooklyn, what kind of music he likes to listen to, what he likes to cook. I mean, it was so magical that my bosses were over the the moon. I wound up having Dr. Fauci on three times, which then also led to, because we were like in good standing with the people in Washington, uh, we wound up having the Surgeon General on. And friends of mine at local stations were like, how did you do that? I mean, they're only going on the network shows. How did you get them on Good Day New York? And, you know, it was a lot of schmoozing.
2: One of the things that I that we love about you in New York was that you sound very New York. I know that you have sort of laughed about it or even tried sometimes to get rid of a Brooklyn sound, but that's what sounds so, tell me about that because that's that's what's so New York about you.
3: So when I worked at Eyewitness News, they were like, you are not going anywhere until you get rid of that accent. They sent me to this woman, Lillian Wilder. I don't know. Do you remember Lillian? She was a very famous uh, vocal coach. Uh, she has since passed. And I went to her for years, like while I was at Channel 7 for three years. Then I came to Channel 5. I was going. At one point, Lillian just threw up her hands. She was like, just clean it up a little bit because I felt that. My Brooklyn sound, I, I don't know, it was, it was the cadence of my delivery. It was what made me funny. I felt like the minute you took that away from me, I was just like everybody else. You know what I mean? I couldn't show my personality without being the Brooklyn girl. Well. And you know what? Nowadays, you know, the people on, te- on television celebrate accents, Back then, when I started, you couldn't celebrate an accent. You had to be very, like, homogenized.
2: Well, whatever it is, I love you. I love your Brooklyn sound. I love everything about you. You're my friend, and I'm going to go to your family's restaurant, Scotto by Fresco, when it opens in June. Go by
3: Scotto. We're going to open in June, and Cindy, you must be there. We have done our outdoor structure. Wait till you see this.
2: I will. I will see it.
3: We want it to be like being in Capri, eating under lemon trees. And so, what did we do? We got lemon trees.
2: Okay, you can shove your lemon trees because it's time for me to get off this program. And I love you dearly. And I will see you with your lemon trees next month.
3: I can't wait, Cindy. Thank you. I love you so much. And continue doing what you're doing. You inspire all of us. Goodbye, baby. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
1: Best of. It's the best of. Cindy Adams. Best of.
2: I am now about to speak with Nancy Grace. She is on Fox Nation. You hear her, you see her all the time. She is blonde, southern, former Atlanta prosecutor. Her name and her mouth is everywhere. I have known Nancy Grace for centuries. I am now about to speak with her. Okay, Nancy Grace, Nancy Grace, Nancy Grace. Tell me, first I would like to know, tell me what you think about legalizing marijuana.
0: Cindy Adams, I'm surprised you asked me such a thing about legalizing marijuana. Everybody knows that I think it's a horrible idea. Now, don't get me wrong. I do not think that anyone high on marijuana is going to become a crazed killer or an armed robber, such as when you're high on methamphetamine or crack cocaine. But I can tell you this. In jurisdictions where marijuana has been legalized, the homicide rate, particularly vehicular homicide, has skyrocketed. Because people are getting high and driving. And it's had a horrible effect. Also, what a lot of people don't take into account is the effect it has on the lungs, particularly the people that are lured into it at a young age. When you got a marijuana cigarette, when you're smoking a big fat doobie, a blunt, there are no filters like we have in cigarettes, nothing like that, nothing to protect you. And it's really bad for you. Plus, I don't like prosecuting vehicular homicides. I don't like dead bodies on the highway. That's why I'm against it.
2: I, I, the problem with you is you never have any opinion. That's the problem with you. <laughs>
0: that is the problem with me. No opinion.
2: Okay, now I would like to ask you, and I'm going to bite my tongue, about the man who is masquerading in the White House as our president. What do you think of him?
0: Cindy Adams, you are baiting me again. But guess what? I'm going to take the bait. You know how I feel about politics. I don't even like to dip my toe in it because I think all politicians, be they Republican, Democrat, Independent, Green, I think they're all lying. And I think that that is borne out about what happens in the White House every four years. But as far as Biden goes, I mean, look, we had this choice. We had Trump, who can be a real a-hole. That's a technical legal term. And you've got Biden. Who doesn't know what day of the week it is? So with the inflation, with inflation and rampant crime on the rise, and now dealing with Ukraine, I'm I'm very concerned. But it concerns me about Biden's White House regime, not just Biden. And that when you listen to his spokesperson, I don't like the way that she seemingly mocks everyday Americans, with inflation the way it is and gas prices the way it is. I mean, I remember, Cindy, in law school, I would actually have to buy gas at the pump, sometimes with quarters, nickels, and dimes. A lot of people can't imagine that. But I would have to scrounge around to pay for gas to get my Toyota Corolla from my apartment to the law school. I know how that feels. There are people that literally cannot afford to drive to work and back. It's a horrible way to live, dollar to dollar, paycheck to paycheck. And gas prices count. They may not I count, agree with you. I agree with you. people in the White House, but they count to the rest of the people across this country. And I don't like it when they laughingly comment on what regular people should do. You know what, Cindy? You know this. My dad worked the railroad and my mom was a bank teller who fought her way up to the CFO position of a big company. They worked hard, and I don't appreciate the condescending attitude we're getting from the White House.
2: How about her hair? How about that speaker's hair? How about the red hair? You think that's natural? You know, I don't, I don't like anything know, about her.
0: I don't know if the drapes match the carpet, but that's not my concern. Don't okay, care. but it's mine. It's at the
2: moment I, don't I hate have a that. leg
0: to stand on when it comes to bottle blonde. So I want to take myself out of that fight. <laughs>
2: Listen, Nancy. You have been everywhere on so many great stories. You have been fighting for the things that most of us believe in. What is happening to our country? What is happening to our government? What are we going to do,
0: Sandy? I tell you, I crossed the country on a routine basis um, at my job with Fox Nation, Sirius XM, and Crime Stories. I talk to people that have been greatly affected, greatly impacted by crime. And a lot of people are feeling hopeless. They feel they can't keep up with inflation. They feel like they don't have a voice. They feel like the country is being run by elitists, where they, regular people, don't have a voice. And it's very disheartening because these are the people that are the backbone of our country. Um, I was just in. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And I was investigating the case where a young woman was stabbed 22 times and it has been declared a suicide. Now, we all know that's impossible, including uh, cuts to the back of her neck. That is no suicide. That's why I was in Harrisburg and I met her family, her wonderful family, and other people there at her synagogue. And I was greatly touched. how much they want the system to work but when you look at the system and you see the so-called bail reform act going on where hardened criminals get out the same day they get fingerprinted and booked it's very upsetting to have repeat offenders walking amongst the innocent it's very upsetting
2: but everybody is worrying about the prisons what about the victims nobody cares about that Is that what's going to happen in the
0: future? Well, Cindy Adams, you set off another bomb. You said the word prison. Why is it in our country there are so many apologists? Nobody wants to build any additional prisons. They like to whine about the condition of the prisons, how bad the conditions are. But the answer is not letting hardened criminals back out on the street to attack innocent people. The answer is to build more and more modernized jail facilities. There, I said it. Our population has gone up. Our prison system needs to be shored up. We need more prisons and more modernized prisons. No more whining about prison conditions. Fix it. We've got so much money in the federal coffers. Why not use it and protect innocent people? I mean, in New York, Every day in the New York Post, my number one favorite paper, every day we see another story about a convicted felon that has walked free and committed another crime. What, what will it take until it stops?
2: Nancy, have you been going around saying this? I haven't seen you saying this. This should be said everywhere. I say quite everywhere.
0: a bit on Fox Nation. I say quite a bit on Fox Nation, and Sirius XM One Eleven. I mean, I, I, I just did an outright plea for Newsom to keep a killer behind bars that the parole board had agreed to let out. And thank God in heaven, he did the right thing. I just did the same thing asking the Georgia pardon and parole to keep a killer and a guy that I helped prosecute, by the way, way back when. But yes, I say it, but you know nobody wants to hear hard answers that don't fit in with the elitist ideology. And again, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I hold them both in great contempt. I want what's I'm an American. That's what I want. What's best for our country? What
2: would be best about the gun situation today?
0: Well, you know, Cindy, I'm biased. I'm a victim of gun violence. You know, my I know, child, that. I know that. I know that. I well know wedding, that. I well know that. I've handled a lot of guns and prosecuted a lot of gun cases. And while I value our Second Amendment right, I am for some degree of gun control because uh for instance i'm investigating a case right now where 40 guns were stole from a mom and pop gunshot gunshot range in Coweta county georgia you know those 40 guns are already on they're already filing off those uh serial numbers yeah, yeah, and flooding know, the black market and they'll go for hundreds and hundreds of dollars each probably up in new york city There's got to be, you can't tell me with all our scientific advances that we can't figure out a way to keep guns away from bad guys. I'm not worried about the people that have a license and a carry permit. Have at it. I'm worried about the nuts that are shooting innocent people in parking lots, at shopping malls, in schools. That's what I'm worried about. You know, I
2: concur, I I agree with everything you're saying. Tell me why. Only leftist professors are in colleges teaching (laughs) our children. I don't have a good answer for that, do
0: you? Well, I do believe there are a lot of left-wing professors in colleges and universities across the country, but I also believe that there are conservatives. They're probably just too afraid to say anything. <laughs> but I, I also believe, as far as universities and colleges, and i sat on the board of my alma mater. I've got two of them, Mercer University and NYU. Uh, but at Mercer, I sat on the board, and they have a wonderful, wonderful cadre of professors I think across the country, conservatives are really afraid to speak out because they're afraid they'll be canceled. Do you blame them? But yeah, no, I, I
2: understand that,
0: that. Yeah, I also think that very often professors, instructors live in a bubble, the so-called ivory tower. They're not mingling with the great unwashed. I mean, me and uh, regular people on the street that work every day. I, I think that they are privileged in a sense they don't have to and we want to keep their minds and their intellects pure but i, I think that they're away from harsh realities of regular life sometimes
2: But as long as i've got you on the air nancy i know that you were very big in covering the brian Laurie, gabby petito story with with their oh, yes. their killings can you tell us a little bit about what you know how what happened
0: well, the Brian Laundry gabby Petito case really gripped the country because at the time it first skyrocketed onto the headlines, no one knew where Gabby was. Gabby Petito, a beautiful young girl up the Northeast, had moved down to Florida with her fiancé, Brian Laundry and his family at North Point, Florida. They went on a – they gave up their jobs, and they went <laughs> vlogging which is, you know, blocking yeah, it I'm yeah, yeah. And across the country, she was really doing all the work. And then suddenly she went missing, and Brian Laundry, the so-called fiancé, comes all the way back across the country in her van using her credit cards and debit cards, gets all the way back with no Gabby. And the family, his family sat on that information for many, many days until her family had to call the police. Uh, they they would not help Gabby's family in any way. And the search for Gabby, ultimately, oh,
2: I I thanks see. to
0: civilian sleuthing, someone actually saw Gabby's van out in dispersed camping. Which means you're not near a porta potty, you're not near a water hookup. You are out in the wilderness. That's dispersed camping. They spotted a van matching hers there. Called police, and Gabby's body was found there. Brian Laundry, of course, suspect number one ended up, we think, killing himself in um, Carlton Reserve, which is in Florida. It's about 25,000 acres of watery preserve. His body was found with some of his self-absorbed musings in a notebook. That happened, and many people are asking, will his parents be prosecuted for withholding evidence during the search for Gabby? That remains to be seen. I predict no, because the only people that know anything about it would be their lawyer, Brian yeah. Laundry and the Laundrie family yeah. lawyer. Yeah. And he's under the yeah. privilege. You can't say anything.
2: Listen, I could speak to you for like three weeks at a time, but I know you've got your children and I know you've got stuff you've got to do for them. Just tell us Actually, now. What...
0: They're with me right now, right ah. now. We're, we're, we're doing Easter activities right now. And, um, We've all been waiting for, for your call because they've heard of the great Cindy Adams. And Ab- absolutely, <laughs> they're absolutely. are right now.
2: Talking to the great Nancy Grace. Listen, when you come into town, give a call. We'll have dinner. Okay, honey? Well, Thank only you. if
0: all the restaurants are open for Pete's sake,
2: Cindy Adams, and I certainly hope they are. If not, you can come to my home. I'll send okay, out for food. I love you. Okay? <laughs> love Thank you, Cindy Nancy. Adams. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you, honey. Bye.
1: This is the best of Cindy Adams. Best of.
2: I am speaking to Henry Winkler, who is so hot. I mean, he keeps going on and on and on. Listen, when you sign an autograph, do you sign the
1: funds or do you sign your name? I sign my name and depending on the generation, I sign uh, one of the... Animated characters, the Fonz, I signed, Gene Cousineau from Barry.
2: (laughs) Okay. Did you ever, when you started out, did you ever get a lousy review?
1: I got so many lousy reviews. I did a movie called The One and Only, which was the story of gorgeous George, the wrestler. Yeah. And a man in Texas wrote, I don't know whether to stand up and scream or set my hair on fire and run out of the theater. (laughs) How bad were you? Why was it that bad? Uh, You know what? I didn't think I was bad enough for him to maul himself.
2: (laughs) Okay. Okay. How did you start? We all know about you. We all know you're a big star. How did you start?
1: Well, you know what? I really, really believe. One thing that I wrote on a piece of paper is I don't want to be a flash in the pan. I don't want to all of a sudden, like, do something and have it work and then disappear. So I thought going to school was very important. And I studied in college and then in graduate school at Yale. Studied what? uh drama and in college a uh, drama and child psychology well how does that connect
2: i mean how do you do the it
1: two doesn't. Things? but if i it, it doesn't connect but if <laughs> i was not an actor if i could not earn a living as my dream then i i would work exclusively with young people and keep their self-image buoyed
2: so listen to me harry Henry, I understand all that you're saying. Can you remember your first screen test, what it was like and what it was for?
1: Believe it or not, my very first screen test was for Happy Days. I auditioned for Gary Marshall and Tom Miller and Eddie Milkis, and then they brought me back a week later, and um, uh, they plucked my unibrow, they combed my hair into a ducktail. They put me in a T-shirt. And I auditioned for Michael Eisner and Barry Diller. Both were powerful executives at ABC. Weren't you scared? Uh, you know what? I was so hell-bent. When I was at Yale, I had the most magnificent teacher. His name was Bobby Lewis. He was a member of the group theater. He was divine. And he said to us over and over again, your job is to get the job. And once you get the job, then think about doing the job. So I I was scared before I walked into the room. And then I was my competitive self, kicked into gear. But that's
2: very interesting because the group theater goes back a long time so he must have been an aged gentleman and that was when we had so many people actually learning theater. I learned all about it because I did uh, the autobiography of the Actors Studio, the man who created it. So I know these people. That's how you really learned how to be an actor. But Listen, there's a story that I've heard but I can't I can't bring it all back Tell me a story of how of you're holding bodily fluid for some show what am I talking about I, I know the story but I don't know what I'm talking about
1: okay I held bodily fluids for a show yo oh i was doing something i'm not very good at i was doing young seward at the yale repertory theater in uh in a uh, a shakespearean production um and i was killed by uh i believe it was um macbeth and i had to lie on the stage for twenty minutes motionless, which for a kid who with ADD was really difficult.
2: Yeah. I'm Add
1: sure. to that, I had to pee and I kept thinking, <laughs> what can I do? I can pee on stage and use okay. my costume to mop it up. I can inch oh, yes. very so slowly oh. toward off stage. <laughs> But I held it. I did not take the curtain call. I ran off stage.
2: Oh I'm
3: so I have proud of you. I've never been
1: <laughs> so happy in my life.
2: Oh my god. That, that that's a wonderful, wonderful story. I knew about it, but I didn't know what I knew. So do you do you have a collection of all of your shows? You've been in so many. Do you have a box set at home so you can watch yourself?
1: You know what I don't? I, uh, I do TiVo, uh, performances that are on television. I have very few live performances. Um, and you know what? I never watch myself until a long time later because, you know, like people go to see their rushes. They go to see the dailies, the, yeah. um, yeah. uh, what they shot that day. And if I did that, I would then be intimidated and say, well, I just did that. I can't do it again. And so I never really watch myself.
2: You don't watch yourself after you've just done
1: a scene? No, I do not. Unless Bill, uh, right now, uh, Bill uh, Hader says to me, I want you to see where the camera is. I want you to see where the other actors are so that you know what the geography is. Otherwise, I do not.
2: Well, what would you have done if you were not an actor? Because you're so obviously meant to be one and you're an extrovert, I'm sure what would you have
1: done i would have worked with i had um being dyslexic i have um uh or had for the longest time a very low self-esteem i literally believed everything that the teachers my parents said to me i'm stupid uh you're not living up to your potential and I would work exclusively with young people and make sure that no matter what their challenge was, their self image was uh, strong.
2: That's quite something. That's quite something. Are you not ever intimidated?
1: Am I not intimidated? I'm intimidated. I used to be intimidated my whole life. And then as I got older, I'm now 76 years old. So maybe 10 years ago, maybe less than 10 years ago, all of a sudden I could not, um, deny that I kind of knew what I was doing.
2: That's very interesting that you had the ability to overcome whether it was dyslexia or anything else. Very few people can overcome it. I know that. Does this give you the strength then? Does this give you the strength that you can overcome the disability?
1: You know what? You don't overcome the disability. What you do is you learn to negotiate it. You don't think to yourself, it is the end of me. You think to yourself, it is part of me, and it is a part that I will be able to gain strength from.
2: So it doesn't hurt your ability to act? It doesn't do any of that?
1: No. What it does is it. I cannot read off the page uh, like in a scene. I have to memorize as quickly as I can. I see. I can't read and act at the same time. I was kicked out of acting school at Emerson College because I said to the teacher, I'm going to try something brand new. I'm going to act the scene and read it at the same time. He said, not in my class, you're not. Get (laughs) out.
2: Okay. Tell me about Barry. Tell me about Barry. Are you enjoying it? Are you enjoying doing this? And how did you get it?
1: Well, I got it by auditioning twice for Bill Hader and Alec Berg. Uh, There I was intimidated because I now have to make these two comic brilliance, you know, these two unbelievable comic men, I have to make them laugh. So that was number one. Number two, I love every minute of my Uh. job.
2: Ah, and we love every minute seeing you. We really love you. you. You're a very nice man, and you're very kind, and you're very loving to talk to. And I thank you for coming on, and I'm going to watch you again and again and again.
1: You know what? I could not ask for more. And let me tell you something, Cindy. Every time since the beginning of my career, we have had incredibly wonderful chat.
2: Thank you for talking to me, my friend. I enjoyed you. Thank you very much.
1: A pleasure. Bye, honey. The best of Cindy Adams is on the air. Best of. of.
2: So, Seth Pinsky, the CEO of the 92nd Street Y. When did you become CEO?
4: I had the great good fortune and the great timing of becoming CEO of the 92nd Street Y in January of 2020.
2: Why? Who were you?
4: I previously had worked in real estate development and before that had uh, been the president of the New York City Economic Development Corporation under Mayor Bloomberg. Um, and I think, uh, the reason I was selected is because, um, of my involvement with the city over the years, my involvement with not-for-profits in that role, and, uh, also my long-standing love of arts, culture, and Jewish programming, all of which are critical, uh, elements of the 92nd Street Y.
2: The 92nd Street Y is like the Statue of Liberty. It's one of the very special places. But why is such a magnificent place nowhere else?
4: Well, it's a great question. And, you know, since coming here in 2020, it's a question I've often asked myself. And where I've come out on it is that there really is no place anywhere else on earth like the 92nd Street why We're not a university. We're not a community center. We're not a cultural center. We're kind of all of these things, but we're also more. And I think that the reason why we're so unique is that we operate at the intersection of three strong and distinctive traditions. First, we're a distinctly American institution. We believe that people can improve themselves and their station in life, and we enrich lives every day with the aim of, of achieving that goal. Second, we're a distinctly New York institution. I would argue that we're the quintessential New York institution. We're a beehive of energy with our doors open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and packed into our crowded campus. We offer all sorts of programs and services from arts and culture to programming for kids to programming for senior citizens to a gym and even a residence. And then finally... We're a distinctly Jewish institution. We were founded by German-Jewish businessmen with an original goal of serving newly arrived Eastern European Jews, and we now serve people of every faith and background and persuasion. And the 92nd Street Y continues to honor the Jewish values on which we were founded. We have a strong emphasis on education. We have a strong belief in the importance of accepting and welcoming the other, and a strong belief that all of us are better off and more secure if the bonds of community are strengthened.
2: Okay, all of that sounds great. And I understand why we're not going to have places like that in downtown Utah, but we got a lot of places. Why only New York?
4: Well, New York is is a special place. You know, it's it's a city that brings people together from all over and, and forces them to learn how to live with one another and communicate with one another and ultimately to appreciate one another. And I think these are all the, the values that we at the 92nd Street Y have tried for our 150 almost a year history um, to foster.
2: Okay. Well, I'm not so sure how we're all getting on at this moment. <laughs> but thank you for the idea. How do you come become a member?
4: So we don't really have membership at the 92nd Street Y. We um, uh, have the ability for people to make donations, and, and to, if they do at certain levels, they, they get certain benefits. And we have memberships to some of our programs, like our senior program, and our gym. Um, but we welcome people from all over New York, um, from all over the country, and indeed from all over the world to all of our programs. Um, and all you have to do is go to 9 nyorg and you can look at any program and anything that's of interest to you. You can buy a ticket and come and participate.
2: Okay, Seth. So tell me, what are the classes and what are the events for people listening in who aren't members or, or who aren't coming?
4: Well, this is one of the things that makes the 92nd Street Y such a special place is we have so many different kinds of events that are going on. Right now, for example, we're in the thick of camp season. We have almost 2,000 kids coming into our building every day for our in-city camps, and we have over 600 kids going up to our camp in Rockland County. We have a senior center, which after the pandemic is now coming back to life, and we have hundreds of seniors who join us. For programming in person and online, our art schools from fine arts to ceramics to jewelry making to dance to music to musical theater, they're all active and busy, and our online adult education platform which uh, we just launched uh, in April and can be found uh, at roundtable.org. It's uh, it's called Roundtable. includes courses that are taught by professors from the best universities in the world, from chefs who are James Beard finalists, Pulitzer Prize-winning authors, and even General David Petraeus will be teaching a class. And in terms of stage events, next week is our annual Jazz in July Festival. We'll be featuring Bill Charlap, Joshua Redman, Kenny Barron, and the list goes on. On Sunday, Alex Edelman is going to be on our stage in conversation with Stephen Colbert. Um, and on Wednesday, we'll be featuring a conversation with Chef Paul Hollywood. Um, for those of your listeners who know, okay. he's from the okay, okay. British breakoff off. And the, and the list goes on.
2: What about because of the pandemic? Are we not getting a lot of seniors who are coming in because they have nothing else to do and nothing to fill their houses? Is that not the case at this moment?
4: That's certainly been part of uh, the experience. We're definitely seeing our seniors coming back. Um, The pandemic, as you know, was particularly difficult for them Fortunately, when we migrated all of our programming online, which we did when the pandemic hit, we also were able to migrate our um, senior programming online. And um, it was incredibly gratifying to see the impact that that programming had, even remotely, on these people who were completely isolated for two years. And now that we've reopened the building, we're seeing... Between 2,500 and 3,000 people on an average weekday coming back, and many of those, in fact, are senior citizens. Although they're they're people of all ages,
2: of course. Yeah, but I've seen. Well. I I know that I have a lot of senior friends. Or, or their grandmothers, or their mothers, or their parents, and I know that they're all coming there because they have nothing else to fill the time. Listen, tell me about some of the old days. I mean, wasn't this a, a time or a place for Alvin Ailey and Kurt Vonnegut and those ple- people? Am I, Yeah, am I, I...
4: no, you're, you're absolutely right, okay. and it's one of okay. the things that really makes the 92nd Street Y so special. You've got stories about people who would ultimately become famous um, and were involved in the 92nd Street Y before they became famous. Emma Lazarus, who, as you know, wrote the poem uh, The New Colossus about the Statue of Liberty, taught English here. Zero Mostel, the great actor, taught painting here. uh, Early in her career, before she was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Ruth Bader Ginsburg gave uh, a a lecture here. But in terms of um, uh, important Premieres and and events that introduced uh, great artists and and their works. You've got uh, Dylan Thomas, for example, premiered um, *Under Milkwood* on our stage. Uh, Truman Capote debuted in *Cold Blood*. Kurt Vonnegut, whom you mentioned, premiered uh, *Breakfast of Champions*. I think that he said when he when he announced uh, started to read it that not even his wife had seen it before. And in the dance world, which you alluded to. We really were the birthplace of of modern dance or one of the the key birthplaces of modern dance. Martha Graham, Agnes DeMille taught here. Paul Taylor premiered and and really made his uh, first mark on our stage. And then there was, as you alluded to, a young African-American choreographer and dancer who at the time wasn't welcomed on the stage of any other um, performance space in the city Came to the 92nd Street Y, eventually developed and premiered uh, a piece called Revelations, which turned out to be one of the most iconic American dance pieces of all times. And that person, of course, was Alvin Ailey, and went on to great things. So, it's we have a long history of association with great artists, and it's something we're very proud of.
2: Okay, I've been asked by the by by the 92nd Street Y to interview or mc when you have some event for whatever the reason i could not do it at whatever time they asked what what does that mean you have an mc do you, what do you do with the mc do you hire them do you pay them how do you do it what is an mc supposed to do
4: So it's a a great question. So um, we have a number of different performances that appear on our stages. We do dance. We do music. We do uh, musical theater. Um, And in addition to that, um, we're very well known for our talk series, the Reckonati Kaplan talk series. And in our talks, what we try to do is bring together um, leading thinkers, uh, entertainers, intellectuals, academics, um, and to have them discuss topics that are of importance. Particular relevance to the world and to our audience, and in those conversations, we'll often ask a moderator to come and engage in conversation with um, the the person or people who are giving the talks. So uh, those people um, usually come uh, as volunteers. Uh, they're people who, like you, have uh, experience speaking with people and have um, knowledge and and information to bring of their own, and. Um, we would love to host you on our stage one day um, uh, in that capacity. And uh, as I said, we have a full season of those talks coming up, including a number of uh, really exciting talks this, uh, this summer.
2: Anything let li- get loused up that didn't work? I mean, everything sounds so great. Didn't you ever have anything that didn't work?
4: Oh, well, listen, the pandemic was really tough. Um, and I'm not going to lie about that. It was um, devastating to so many members of our community. People got sick. Of course, there were people who lost their lives, which was um, as devastating an outcome as, as one can imagine. As an institution, like a lot of cultural institutions, we were forced to make some very difficult decisions about personnel. But what we decided to do during the pandemic, which is how we try to confront all um, uh, challenges that we face, was we decided that we were going to take whatever lemons we were handed and and turn them into lemonade.
2: Oh, my um, God, you sound so wonderful. Nothing goes wrong. You just sound so wonderful.
4: No, it's, you know, things go wrong. But when things go wrong, they also present opportunities. And that's how we try to view them.
2: Okay, I would like to view this as a possibility to come there one day, and I want to thank you for coming on for me because so many of us know and love the 92nd Street Y, but we don't exactly know what it is. So you have helped us, and I, you're going to get stuck with me one day when I'm going to come by and ask you how I can help and what I can do.
4: Well, it would be an honor to have you. It would be an honor to host any of your listeners. And uh, I hope we have the opportunity soon to see you in person and uh, to speak more about all the great things that are happening here on 92nd in Lexington.
2: Thanks, Seth. Thank you very much for coming on, honey. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.